0: Defining the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euroz Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today, and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted, and settle in for a great story, here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield.
1: Hey everyone and welcome to our 10th episode of Finding the Front. In this episode we have an amazing opportunity to meet and learn about one of Australia's most experienced pharmaceutical and biotech CEOs and entrepreneurs, Mr. Peter Malloy. Peter is the founder and executive chairman of Fibrick Pharma Stock Code FRE, a company that has developed a breakthrough nasal spray medicine that targets the viral cause of the common cold. Peter has an unbelievable background in this pharmaceutical and biotech sector. He is a qualified microbiologist and biochemist who built a successful career in the pharmaceutical industry, initially at Falding, Australia, where as a microbiologist and marketer, he was integral in the launch of the well-known betadine sore throat gargle, which has been an incredible success. And then at Pharmacia, which was later to become Pfizer, where he was a managing director of the Australia and New Zealand operations. In fact, during his career, Peter launched some 23 new pharmaceutical products and executed no less than 40 international licensing or distribution deals. Throughout his career, he has been the CEO of four biotech companies in both the US and Australia. This really is quite something. So without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the show, Mr. Peter Malloy. (laughs) Dr. Peter Malloy, thank you very much for joining us on Finding the Front.
2: Thank you, Tim. Looking forward to it.
1: Great. Look, uh, I'll, I'll just let the listener know that we've got you in Melbourne, dialling in. And uh, we're just so grateful for your time, Peter, to take what is a valuable part of your day over there and to just have a chat to us here on Finding the Front about your journey, which is, I must say, absolutely captivating. Uh, I mean, currently, you're the founder and executive chairman of Fibrick Pharma, which recently IPO'd on the ASX. But the journey to this point is, to say the least, absorbing. You are an expert in innovation and entrepreneurship in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology sector with a some twenty year management career in the pharmaceutical industry, managing businesses in both Australia and the USA. What a fascinating place to start.
2: Sounds like a pretty good summary (laughs) then.
1: So look if we just go back a step, just want to hear a little bit about your career or your journey before your career and, you know, a little bit about where you grew up and how did you get to this stellar career that you've had?
2: Great. No, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to talk about all that. Um, I guess one of the uh, the things that was formative for me was that first of all, I had two parents who were both university graduates in science and both academically encouraging, and that's something that uh, was important to not only not only me but also my uh, my brothers and sisters. So I have a brother who's a doctor, a sister who's a, a doctor, another one who's an engineer and I'm a, a, an entrepreneur as well as a scientist. So I think that was very important. But my father was a senior executive with mobile oil at one point in his career, and that took him to the South Pacific. And I, after being born in uh, Sydney, I spent my first five years in New Mir in New Caledonia. Is that right? And, Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I essentially had my, my first, formative years, speaking French, going to school in uh, Numea, in and came to Australia when I was about six years old, barely speaking any English. And so that was that was something that influenced my thinking about schooling in particular. And I suffice to say that when you're six years old and uh, you're speaking French in primary school in, in Australia, you learn to speak some English pretty quickly. So I did. But the English language was never something that I really saw as an important academic pursuit. I saw it as a sidebar to doing the things that I was much more interested in along the way, which was science and math. And thankfully, because of uh, genetics, I guess I was lucky lucky to be reasonably intelligent and was always good at those other things. It actually wasn't until after I left school that I realized how important the English language was and decided that this is something I need to master because it's so important in business communication. And in fact, it got to the point where I became so interested in in the English language that I actually wrote and published a novel at one time about 20 years ago when I was living in the U.S. So that's that's oh. a whole other story. <laughs> but my interest in school was always in in science and maths. And uh, I do remember in primary school the, the nuns giving me a. Uh, I went to a small Catholic primary school, and the nuns gave me a note to take home, and it said to my parents, "Peter is very frustrating because he never studies, but always comes first in the class. Could you do something about this?"
1: <laughs> that's not a—that's not, sure. not a bad problem to have.
2: <laughs> so schooling was was reasonably comfortable from that point of view, but it allowed me to really pursue my interests strongly. And by the age of fourteen, I became intensely interested in chemistry. To the point where my father, who was also a qualified chemist, let me build a laboratory in the backyard, believe it or not. And so my birthday presents were going to scientific supply houses and buying test tubes and beakers and flasks and chemicals and things. Very strange, I guess, for a 14 and 15-year-old. And by the age of 15, I'd, I'd read his university chemistry textbooks and was very interested in chemistry. But as my schooling and then university years evolved, I became more interested in biology. And those two things coalesced, and I graduated in microbiology and biochemistry from Melbourne University. I was not interested in becoming a scientist because prior to finishing my university degree, I actually worked at CSL for a year and realized that actually most of what you do in science is pretty boring. You sit around measuring things and writing reports and that kind of turned me off being an academic scientist. And I always wanted to be a businessman as a as a kid. I mean some kids want to be policemen or firemen or whatever. I wanted to be a businessman, believe it or not. And to follow in my father's footsteps. And so when I left university I got a job as a, a sales rep for a scientific equipment supply company and sold scientific equipment to industrial laboratories and research labs. And that saw me move to Adelaide from Melbourne. So I grew up in, in Melbourne after New And that saw me move to Adelaide where I got the job of setting up the scientific equipment business there in Adelaide. And from there I there was a job advertised at a company called Folding. Folding Pharmaceuticals. Yes, yes. As a product manager and I took that job and that's how I started my pharmaceutical career.
1: Well maybe, Peter, that would be just a good place to start drilling down a little bit. So you're trained as a microbiologist and a biochemist but you started at Folding as a product manager. That's correct? That's correct. Yeah.
2: So it was really a marketing role.
1: A marketing role and you I understand you're about 24 when you started there. Now this is a pretty significant period of your life because you ended up being with Folding and through their acquisitions for some 13 years. So I just just really provided you with a foundation of skills and I think really when I look at a couple of the highlights that I could glean out of this period of time, you were able to sort of understand a couple of things. Firstly, enough to get you to general manager of the medical division of Folding by the age of twenty nine, so five years later. You also embarked on a course which was quite pivotal in your life in terms of leadership being the grid approach to leadership and organizational culture. And the last and probably most importantly, when we look at your current role, was in this role, you had an opportunity to look at the launch of the Betadine Sore Throat Gargle, which has been an incredible success. Is there just a little bit of an insight there we could gain on this part of your life?
2: You know, it's extraordinary how your formative career years can be so pivotal for you. And Folding was a great Australian company. And it's a shame that it disappeared through acquisitions. It gave me the opportunity to do a number of things, get involved in product development, in manufacturing and in marketing. And along the way, I did a a marketing diploma. I did an MBA. So before I finished at Balding, I had an MBA as well. Um, I also did a, a computer sciences course and was using computers at a fairly early stage in to support uh, marketing activities even before the laptops came out so marketing became a very important part of my life and I was fascinated by the idea that you could create products and people would buy them what a great concept yes it didn't it didn't always work <laughs> sometimes <laughs> sometimes there was some certainly some interesting disasters early in my career but one of them that was most successful was the better Dean match and I loved as a as a microbiologist and a marketer, I love the idea of this compound that was the Goldilocks of disinfectant. It was safe enough to use on even delicate human mucous membranes, like in the throat or even in the nose, potentially. And yet it killed all microorganisms. There's nothing else like that. So it was a great challenge to take this basic hospital disinfectant, hospital antiseptic, was the way it was positioned and to turn it into an over-the-counter pharmacy franchise in Australia that grew from almost nothing to the largest and most successful and most profitable franchise for the folding group. So that's what happened with BetterD. Just to get to the the, the point you raised about uh, the grid leadership approach, when I came into folding as a product manager, at a young age you, you tend to be fairly you can be arrogant and you can believe that you know uh, your opinions are more worthwhile than others etc but before i took on the general management role i realized i needed leadership training and my boss at the time a a, a guy called brian davies who i had great respect for sent me to a course now he was actually intending to go on this course but unfortunately brian had cancer and was in sadly the terminal stages of it, so he sent me on the course and it really was a a pivotal development for me. What this course taught me is that the ideas that can come up through teamwork are far more effective as solutions to problems and have a number of other positive aspects in terms of motivation of people around you in in, in a leadership setting than any opinion that an individual is going to come up with. So I learned the value of working in teams and developed later a, a concept called leadership culture, which is about how ideas are processed and influences expressed in an organization. And the research that I later did on this, this idea of of organization culture became a bit of a passion and how how you could turn leadership into a distinctive competence that made your organization far more potent than your competition so it was really about creating a distinctive competence we did that at folding and the medical division took on the big names in the pharmaceutical industry and we won because we had the benefit of this culture this open trusting candid culture which allowed experimentation didn't uh, didn't punish failure and that's something that stuck with me ever since
1: fantastic you were the youngest division head in the company and and you clearly aspired to goals and, and grid had a formative part. Grid comes up later on in your story in terms of part of your life, but it's really interesting to see how you adopted the idea of teamwork early in your management life, so to speak. And the importance it was. and the importance of culture.
2: Yeah, it's a leadership culture. The that that leadership is not something vested in an individual, but it's a it's a process of how ideas are uh, are processed and influences expressed. And as a leader, your goal is to create the environment where everybody contributes to leadership. And if you can achieve that, it's not a condition of lowest potential energy. It's one that takes a lot of ongoing energy to maintain, but it can give you a true distinctive competence and competitive advantage.
1: Well, you clearly kick some goals there, Peter, because all of a sudden Folding decided to send you on a journey over to the US. And they were clearly in acquisition mode at that point. Is that always an intention of Folding? Were they always acquiring businesses?
2: No, not at all. Folding had developed a controlled release technology that was the basis for their controlled release antibiotics. And they wanted to invest in a future generation of controlled release technology. And so that was the purpose of the acquisition of Molecular in Boston to provide that additional raft of technology. And ultimately, I was sent over there to, uh, or I wanted to go over there. I'd always wanted to work in the US. And so um, I went over there and I became the, uh, the president of the company and uh, was on the board of the company for a period of time. And it was a very interesting experience. It was This was a NASDAQ listed company. I was in my early 30s this was a Nasdaq listed company and in Boston, which is the heart, really, from my perspective, the heart of biotech innovation in the US. And you're surrounded by MIT and Harvard and thirty other universities and on our scientific advisory board we had a Nobel laureate, some of the biggest names in the world in, in controlled release technology. So it was a, a really exciting experience. But it was also a challenging one because We had some difficulties with the founders of the company and ultimately we had to uh, acquire their stakes to take them out of the picture. So there were some very interesting experiences and like each step in your career, you you learn from it and uh, that becomes grist for the mill of your future capabilities as this did with mine. Yes.
1: And like you say, having the opportunity to actually work in Boston in the heart of that biotech environment would have just been a fabulous experience as particularly as president and ceo of moleculon
2: indeed it was and just living in that part of the world was a great experience as well although um, i didn't didn't appreciate the winters but it, it was such a an invigorating and energizing place to be probably my favorite place in the us from that point of view from a professional point of view subsequently after we Got the molecular and business into shape, and ultimately it became quite a successful component of the, uh, the Folding profitability story. And I can't take credit for that, but the people who stepped in after me did so. I was then moved back to Melbourne uh, with Folding to take over another company that they'd acquired. I think I developed this role as a, or well, reputation as a bit of a corporate doctor who could come in and uh, fix things up because Moleculon certainly needed fixing up. And Folding had acquired another company in Melbourne called uh, Selby Annex, which was Australia's largest distributor of scientific equipment and chemicals and so on. And I was given the role of general manager of that company. And my goal was to turn it around and make it profitable for the first time in 10 years. This was a company with a terrible culture, really what I'd consider an avoidance culture, public service type culture, if you like. And my understanding of culture was particularly important in turning it around, and we did turn it around. It was very different to working in the pharmaceutical industry where customer service is actually not that important in the pharmaceutical industry. It's about the quality of the product because the customer experience is actually promulgated through pharmacists and wholesalers and you as the manufacturer, not a critical attribute. But when you're selling and distributing scientific supplies, Customer service is absolutely critical. So I'd learned learnt all about that and installed quality systems, and we turned it around and made it profitable. Subsequently, uh, I was recruited to Pharmacia in Sydney as managing director of Australian and New Zealand operations. And uh, that was a whole different experience because this was a multinational pharmaceutical company, and I was president of, or managing director of one of their subsidiaries in their worldwide network. So now I was working for Big Pharma. And instead of being a turnaround, this was a company that was already profitable, had well-established marketing operations, medical affairs, distribution, very different experience. Not as challenging as the turnaround, but then we had two mergers we had to deal with, and that made it far more interesting. In, uh, I think it was 1993, we merged with Pharmatalia, an Italian oncology company that developed the uh, first anthracycline oncological. And subsequently, uh, that company merged with Upjohn in the US, which took me back to the US to live.
1: Yes, yes, I saw that. So did you draw a lot on your time with folding in terms of the pathway through here?
2: Yes, certainly in terms of the, the capabilities that I'd been developing over the years, I did. But, you know, Folding and Pharmacia were quite different operations. They were both pharmaceutical marketing and distribution businesses. But whereas at Folding, we had the whole manufacturing side with Pharmacia, the manufacturing was done internationally, and we acted as local distributors and uh, registration groups. It was a slightly different experience working in big pharma compared to working in a small to medium-sized pharma that manages all its own operations and projects itself globally from Australia. This was a subsidiary of a global company. But certainly the general experiences of leadership and culture became very important. And I introduced the same uh, leadership culture approach in Pharmacia. As I had in Folding and uh, in Selby and, and, and other organizations that I'd worked with subsequently. And you know, everyone needed to go through the program. It was actually a formal program of uh, some people described it as brainwashing, but coming out the other end, people recognized the importance of, of teamwork and had developed the skills to operate in a culture where there's openness, trust, and candor, and there's no fear about making mistakes, experimentation is rewarded and there's the expectation that we're going to create, we're going to turn this into a competitive advantage for the company.
1: Really interesting. So your time there with what is now known was Pharmacia was acquired by Pfizer. What a great experience with Pharmacia but it did take you through from there into a really interesting journey of a number of biotech companies that you either founded or co-founded or became CEO of. But at at that point, you were still in the US and I I noticed that you ended up getting citizenship there.
2: Yes, I did. Uh, So one of the companies that I think was a a very important part of the experience trail for me leading into Firebrick was a company called Biota, B-I-O-T-A. Biota was an Australian antiviral drug development company. It had started in 1985, listed on the ASX. So it was really the oldest biotech company in Australia. And it was focused on antiviral drugs. Right. And uh, I became uh, CEO of that company, and that was really uh, an important experience for me in the in the whole development of my interest in antiviral agents.
1: Your time in terms of a commercial success with Biota was f- extraordinary. You were there for three years. I, I would say uh, the company's market value grew from thirty million to around three hundred million. So it sounded like it was a pretty successful time.
2: I think I, I was I was fortunate to be there at the right time, but also I think I contributed to the turnaround that occurred. Biota had been seen as the darling of uh, Australian biotechs by the end of the 1990s and was I think shares got as high as $7 a share and then it collapsed. It collapsed because of a pharmaceutical merger between Glaxo Welcome and Smith Klein, Beecham Uh, resulting in the company we now know as GSK, GlaxoSmithKline. And with that merger came a change of priorities that saw the biota drug, Relenza, completely deprioritized and the the share price collapsed to about 30 cents, 40 cents a share. I was brought in again as a turnaround agent to... uh, and the board was changed, most of the management uh, was changed, and, and I was brought in as the CEO to try to turn it around. And uh, over the subsequent three or four years, it did turn around. We, as you said, we got from a market cap of about thirty million to three hundred million, or thereabouts, and that was sustained for a couple of years after I left. At the end of that process, we, we'd had a um, a US entity in California there was hemorrhaging cash because the exchange rates were terrible at the time. I think it was 50 cents AU to the US dollar. And we were funding that, that operation in California. But I'd been hired from my previous job, which was running a cancer research company in, in Wisconsin in the US. I'd been hired to come and run biota globally from California, right. which my wife my wife and I really appreciated because we wanted to get away from the Wisconsin winters. So we really enjoyed uh, moving to California. But I ended up shutting down the U.S. operation and consolidating everything in Melbourne. And after I did that, the board said to me, well, we really need now an Australian-based CEO. And my wife and I discussed it and we said, well, look, actually, we, we'd prefer to stay in the U.S happy to run it from the U.S., but there's no operations in the U.S. So uh, we agreed that um, I would resign and help them find a new CEO over the uh, subsequent uh, six months, which I did, and concluded a, an important licensing deal during that time as well. And uh, my wife and I stayed in the U.S. and uh, acquired our U.S. citizenship. And the reason we did uh, we did that, the reason we made that decision to take up U.S. citizenship is that At the time, particularly post 9-11, the advice from our immigration attorneys was that if we left the US, we would be deemed to have abandoned our green cards, because that's the step prior to citizenship. Yes, And we would never be able to live in the US again. And we didn't want to give up that option because all our friends were in the US, we'd lived there for 10 years, I'd lived there longer. So we decided to become US citizens. And ironically, In the last couple of years, we decided to uh, renounce that citizenship. So we're no longer U.S. citizens. We're no longer dual citizens. Okay. But uh, it served its its purpose at the time for us, which was to allow us to continue to live in the U.S. Ultimately, in 2010, we decided to come back to Australia because, well, for family reasons, our kids were all living back in Australia. And my mother was uh, very sick with multiple myeloma. And uh, we decided we'd come back at least for a period of time, and uh, we haven't left. Came back to Australia in 2010. In 2012, after seeing the, what had happened to BioDo, because a couple of years after I left, uh, the company started to decline. It did a merger with a US-listed entity under the mistaken belief that if you can just get the company in the US, you'll get a much better value appreciation. And the share price would go up and that that didn't happen. And you've got to have a good proposition. It doesn't matter where the company's listed. And unfortunately, the biota proposition had declined. And uh, as a result, biota wasn't going anywhere and its uh, programs were not looking like they were going to move forward. And one of those programs was a treatment for the common cold, a drug called Vipendivir that I'd taken a keen interest interest in. Right. And I saw the phase two results published, and I thought oh, that's disappointing. Really, we need to find a a broad spectrum solution for the common cold. And I'd always thought about povidone iodine from my betadine days, and that's uh, that was the inspiration for Firebrick.
1: I mean, it's a great way to just move forward into the the start of the Firebrick journey. But there was race oncology as well. Was that that was that came after? Correct.
2: That's correct. So after Biota um, in 2015, I took interest in the race oncology story and we listed that on the ASX in uh, July, 2016. And it was a rocky road for the first three years. And of course the rest is history. It went from a listing at 20 cents a share. And today I'm not sure what the share price is, but it's probably around $3.
1: What a fantastic story.
2: Well, I can't take all the credit for that because um, I think I left the company in uh, 2020 uh, before a lot of the growth occurred. Uh, But to some extent, I hope I, uh, I teed it up for that growth.
1: Peter, at this point in your career, you've launched something like 23 new pharmaceutical products and over your career executed some 40 international licensing or distribution deals. Before we get into firebrick because i'm really interested in this this story and the part of how it evolved but could you just give the listener a bit of an insight into what it takes to be able to a develop a product b get it approved and then c distribute it because i know the regulator plays a very big part in that for example the fda in the us and the tga here and there would be other regulators, I'm sure, but could you just give us a bit of an insight into that story about how you start a product and then you get it to the end point where I suppose with the case of Betadine sore throat gargle, you went through that. And it'd just be really interesting to hear from a general perspective the challenges to get through.
2: The challenges are greater now than they ever have been. The regulators are constantly evolving the regulations, and they're not getting easier. They're getting harder. The interface between pharmaceutical companies and the regulators is now more complex than it's ever been. And that's one reason. And at the same time, we have technology moving at an incredible pace in terms of opportunities for drug development. And so what we've seen is that the pharmaceutical companies are very much focused on the regulatory interface and handling, addressing that complexity at that end and essentially outsourcing a lot of the R&D, the early stage drug development, to biotech companies. And that's where the the biotech companies have come to the fore as value generating propositions. They're essentially intermediaries in the pharmaceutical value chain and have become increasingly important as both pharmaceutical firms are distracted by the complexity of the regulatory interface on the one hand, and technology is growing at such a rate, on the other hand, that uh, one pharmaceutical company can't keep up with it all. So they've essentially outsourced that. Now, that's not the way it was back in the day when I was, say, at folding or even at Pharmacia. In those days, the regulatory environment was less demanding and less complex, and we were able to get drugs. Approved, especially over-the-counter drugs or hospital products, and a lot of the products that I did launch at Falling were over-the-counter and hospital products. Although there were several prescription drugs as well. For example, I launched a Dorix in Australia, which is a controlled-release doxycycline. And if a doctor prescribes it for you today, it's probably going to be the Dorix brand that you get. Right. I also also launched Pantoprazole, which is sold under the brand somax and uh, I launched that in Australia as well. And if you have, you know, gastroesophageal reflux, you're probably going to be prescribed Somac or something similar. So some of them were prescription, but the, I guess my point is that it's changed a lot how drugs are developed and approved now, and we really have multiple players in this value chain that each play a role. And that's why biotech has become such an important value generator as an intermediary in the pharmaceutical value chain.
1: Very interesting. Well, while we're on that subject, how are you seeing the Australian biotech company space unfolding? Are we seeing a lot of innovation and adoption and similar to the technology sector, are we seeing a growth in this area?
2: Well, this has been a an area of fascination and research for me. I completed a PhD actually on this topic, um, a research-based PhD looking at the Australian biotech sector from an an investor performance and value creation perspective and have done quite a bit of research on that and published several papers. Australia is a small player globally in biotech. When you look at The US, and you look at the world's biotech industry, I'll call it an industry, even though it's not really one, it's more of a sector, let's call it that. The US dominates. The US accounts for 80% of the market value of biotech firms. And of those biotech firms, around 80% are firms engaged in drug development. They're not involved in medical devices or research tools or diagnostics. These are small parts of the value proposition. It's about drug development. Drug development is the standard bearer for biotech, and if you can't be successful in drug development, you're not gonna generate a valuable biotech sector. And that's one of the challenges for Australia. We haven't been good at early stage drug development and husbanding drug ideas and early stage programs all the way through to maximum value. They've either tended to be sold off early or they just haven't got there because the ideas weren't good enough in the first place and we're so far removed from our customers. And our customers are big pharma. Our customers aren't the doctors prescribing the drugs. Our customers are the big pharma companies that we're going to pass the baton to as intermediaries in this value chain. And we don't have enough appreciation of the big pharma perspective when it comes to doing deals and crystallizing the value that we're generating and realizing it as, as, a, as a return for investment. We tend not to understand that properly. Is that- uh, I guess I've seen both sides of it. I've been in the big pharma side and the biotech side, and I can see both sides, but I think a lot of the leaders of biotech companies in Australia don't see that, and they're developing, and there are some classic examples of developing ideas that seem like good ideas, but there is no market for them because big farmers not interested.
1: Is that, do you think, just through lack of understanding or lack of experience on a global basis?
2: Yes, I think it's partly because it's hard to find people who have had both the pharmaceutical marketing experience to the extent that they understand the full pharmaceutical value chain and the way it's evolving to essentially outsource its early stage drug development as well as understanding how you create value as a biotech firm. To get those two things operating in one leadership group in an organization in Australia is not easy. Many of the people out of the pharmaceutical industry who live in Australia have never experienced the biotech side of early stage drug development because big pharma doesn't do that as a rule. And they've often operated as a a subsidiary of a global company and don't have a full appreciation of the value chain And on the other hand, people coming out of universities who are scientists perhaps don't see the uh, the full value chain and maybe don't even appreciate the importance of understanding that. They think that if there's a big market and the market being defined as, let's say, there's a big market for HIV drugs, let's develop an HIV drug. The reality is there is no market for an HIV drug, even though there are huge sales of HIV drugs, because big pharma is not doing any R&D on it. Right. And if they're not doing R&D, they're not going to enlicense your program, as one example.
1: Understand, understand. So this gives you a, a wonderful foundation, background, understanding for the subsequent launch of Fibric. And no doubt, with all, armed with all this knowledge, you've over a 10-year period of development, you've now got a product that's in its final stages of development. Can we just go into a little bit about Fibric and how it has, has unfolded?
2: Well, Fibrick was, in my view, first of all, a way to creatively meet the need of a treatment for the common cold. It's an ambitious goal. It's the holy grail, a broad-spectrum antiviral that can kill the viruses that cause colds and actually have a clinical impact on the course of the disease. That's an ambition that most pharmaceutical companies have given up on because it's so hard. What I thought of and what Stephen Goodall and I came up with was a simple solution to a complex problem. Let's put something in the nose that operates topically in the nose so it has minimal opportunity for systemic absorption and side effects, but it kills all the viruses that are in there. Yes, it doesn't get in the, inside the cells where the viruses are replicating, but if we can eliminate enough of the viruses in the nose and reduce the viral load, we can intervene in this disease and stop, interrupt the infection and and stop it in its tracks potentially or at least significantly downregulate the immune response that's causing all of the systemic symptoms of the cold. So that was the proposition that we went with. It was was really a huge ambition when you think about it in hindsight. And we followed it systematically. And and Stephen is a very systematic pharmaceutical developer. Uh, I guess I'm more the Creative and marketing-oriented person between us, we represented the perfect combination of skills and attitudes, I should say, to complementary uh, combination of skills and attitudes to to get the job done. Put it this way, it's very hard for two people to work together for ten years and not be at each other's throats, especially when they're quite different personalities with different experiences and orientations. And we succeeded in doing that.
1: Fantastic. And I have to say,
2: part of that is because of this recognition that we need to have openness and transparency and candor to resolve any issues that come up along the way and avoid them festering and uh, becoming antecedent conditions for conflict. And I've seen that happen so often with founders of companies. And so we've assiduously worked to avoid that uh, with Firebrick. And I'm pleased to say we've technically achieved our goal, which was to get a product that was clinically effective and stable and. 10 years later, yeah, I wish it hadn't taken as long as it has, but it's, uh, this is the reality of drug development. Things always take longer. Uh, but fortunately, we've got there. We still are going to launch the product, I hope, with at least 10 years left on its uh, patent life, which is pretty good for a pharmaceutical. Most of them actually don't have 10 years left on uh, their patent runway at the time of launch, and I think Mazadine will have it.
1: Just, Peter, I'm interested to, just based on what we were talking about earlier, When you looked at developing firebrick in terms of the nasal spray, did you have Big Pharma in mind when you started it or was it a goal that you thought, right, I've got the skill set, Stephen's got the skill set, let's get together and try and really benefit the human race in terms of what you might be able to achieve. And I suppose through Big Pharma it comes hand in hand. But did you look at it in that light?
2: I didn't think of firebrick in a way I think of other biotech companies. I see other biotech companies as intermediaries in the pharmaceutical value chain. Their job is to create value by harnessing technology and then selling it, licensing it to big pharma. That wasn't the firebrick proposition. I wanted to create a successful Australian company that was a successful Australian pharmaceutical business that was globally facing. And that was our goal. And we weren't seeking to license this to big pharma or to sell the company to big Pharma, we wanted to create a successful enterprise. I wanted to create, candidly, a billion-dollar business. Yes. Uh, it was has always been one of my ambitions, and so that's why we uh, we started this. And this seemed like a, a compelling proposition.
1: Following on from your comment on patents, patents are such an integral part of the biotech space, and I noticed that with regards to Firebrick. Patents have been filed worldwide and you're saying that hopefully there'll be another 10 years left on the patent. Could you just, for the listener, expand on the importance of patents and the protection it provides?
2: Well, as somebody who's come from the the pharma side and the big pharma side, patents are absolutely crucial. If you're looking to in-license a program from a biotech, one of the first things you look at is the nature of the patents and how long they've got to go. And frankly, if, if I'm looking at in licensing programs and I'm in big pharma, if there's not going to be 10 years left or at least eight years left on the patent life at the time that the product's likely to be launched, I'm not going to champion that product to the higher ups in the company because it's never going to have enough runway to recover the costs of acquiring it and finishing off the development to make the return on investment uh, justified. So it's absolutely crucial that you, as a biotech firm or as a pharmaceutical development firm, that you, as soon as you have your, your patent filed, that you run as fast as you can to get that product through all the stages of clinical development and into the hands of a partner, if that's your strategy. That's not the firework strategy, by the way, that into the hands of the partners so they've got when you pass that baton over they've got at least 10 years left if you are still fiddling around with a program in say phase two or phase one and you've already burned 10 years of the patent life because you didn't have enough funding and this is classic for australian biotech uh, you didn't have enough funding to get there fast enough the program's already dead because you'll never be able to license it right I call that the, the red queen effect and it's an allusion to the the red queen in in Wonderland who had to run as fast as she could to stay in one spot. And that's the case, that's case with, with drug development biotech, DDBs as I call them, drug development biotechs. They need to run as fast as they can to get to that point before the red queen catches up to them. In the case of Firebrick, we've been very conscious of the red queen and we filed patents in 2014, a couple of years after we started the company, finding a pathway to IP was absolutely crucial to patents. It was absolutely crucial before we could get funding from investors. So Stephen and I funded the company ourselves until we got our first patent granted, which was at the end of 2014, early, early 2015. And once we had that patent granted, then we're in a position to say to investors, okay, we've got our patent, Give us the money so we can run as fast as we can to get this product on the market with at least 10 years of patent life left. And we're going to achieve that.
1: Oh, fantastic. That's really, really interesting, Peter. With such a decorated career in this space, there must have been some people in your life that have really influenced you or provided you with an example that you've followed. I'm just interested, is there anyone through your life you've sort of taken parts from and found yourself moulding clearly leadership, teamwork. But are there other other people in your life that have, have been a real
2: influence? Early in my career, I, I think that the, um, the leadership at Folding, and particularly uh, Bill Scammell, who was the uh, the chairman of Folding, was a very positive influence. And I think, amongst other things, taught me the concept that failure is is not a... Basis for termination. It's an education, and uh, when you fail, you learn from it. Just don't do it twice. (laughs) Um, So so that's a trivial example of uh, some of the uh, the leadership uh, ideas that he conveyed. He was an important influence. I have to say though that. My parents were very important influences in my life. My father, from a business point of view, and he and I would constantly talk about uh, what was going on in my various companies along the way, and he always gave me good advice because he was a very experienced person in, uh, in all aspects of business. But the other person who had a profound effect on me was my mother. Now, my mother was a, a lecturer in physics at Sydney University when my father and her met after the, the Second World War. And then she disappeared into parenthood for uh, 20 years. Yes. Um, and then went back to university and, and got five or six degrees, including a PhD and a law degree and a master's degree in, in artificial intelligence. Wow. A brilliant That individual. is amazing.
1: You, you can see where you got it from, Peter.
2: I can only attribute it to my parents. That's right. <laughs> so. Yeah, so they they set the stage for, I guess, the expectations of all of us in the family, which was uh, a very good thing. And yes, I think they they were probably the most profound influences. But look, there have been many people along the way that uh, I've learned from and always keen to learn from people. And I think that openness to learning is a a crucial skill. Too many people have a closed view, especially after you've been doing it for maybe 30 or 40 years. (laughs) You tend to think you have all the answers. Well, I don't think I do.
1: (laughs) It's a very humble approach. Thanks very much for sharing that. Look, just quickly coming back to Firebrick, I, uh, and you talk about people of influence, I noticed that you uh, were able to secure Dr. Phyllis Gardner on the board as a director. Now she's quite well known in the US. Would you be able to just give us a little bit of background as to Dr. Gardner's history and, and her impact?
2: Oh, well, Phyllis is a... Uh A very prominent person in the US, apart from being a professor of medicine at Stanford, she was also a a partner at a major VC firm called Essex Woodlands, who are a big investor in biotech. Uh, She's a scientist, physician, and a venture capitalist. That's an incredible combination. I think she's most well known if anybody has seen the 60 Minutes expose on Theranos. Right. Uh, she is well known from that in Australia because she was interviewed in that. And she's one of the people that uh, exposed Theranos very early in the piece for being uh, a fake. The technology wasn't going to go anywhere, in her opinion. She was absolutely right. They got away with it for some time. So, uh, Phyllis is a great asset for us. We're very, very happy to have her on board. She came on board because Phyllis and I had been on another board together briefly, a company called Parnell Pharmaceuticals, where I'd been a non-executive director for several years, and when we were taking that company to NASDAQ listing, which subsequently did occur, the board wanted to switch from an Australian-based board to a US-based board. So Phyllis and a couple of other people from the US, some of whom I knew reasonably well, came on board. And so we had we had that experience of each other, and I invited her to join the Firebrick board. and very, very pleased that she's come on board. And I think she's going to be a fantastic asset for us as we're looking towards the US eventually for Firebrick.
1: That's really insightful in terms of her experience combined with yourself and Stephen is quite a phenomenal team. Do you often talk to Dr. Gardner regularly about how Firebrick's going? I mean, of course, there's a board role there, but just you know, in general terms,
2: we have productive uh, discussions from time to time. I have to say though that over the last few months, it's been a little. We've been very much focused on getting the company listed, and getting our two clinical trials up and running, but there'll be a lot more interchange going forward.
1: Uh, Very exciting. Gee, Peter, I'm conscious of time, but we could talk for a long time about the biotech sector. It is such an exciting sector and, and you are one of the most experienced in the country, in your area. And what you're doing with Firebrick is another chapter and the journey is only just beginning, it sounds. Be fair to say?
2: I think Firebrick is at an important inflection point. It's not really the beginning. We've been around for 10 years and created a lot of value and never stopped running during that time. Again, very conscious of the red queen. So we will see that value now manifest through a a public presence on the ASX. And uh, I hope that our shareholders will be very happy with what they see. Personally, I'm very much looking forward to the launch of Nasadeen at some time when TGA allows us to do so, and, and in Europe and US and elsewhere in the world. And I hope that in five years' time, we're going to see Nasir on the shelves in most countries around the world.
1: Very, very exciting. Now, just a final question. You've been very busy through your life. You've had an exciting few chapters of different parts and different locations. And have you managed to balance the work-life situation how, how's the family going through through these journeys? I know you've got some wonderful children.
2: Yes, yes. Well, um, I'd say that the uh, work life balance has been terrible. <laughs> to be honest, I've travelled more than three million miles. I still think in miles when it comes to uh, to airline miles. I think I've done two million just on United Airlines. Wow! So you know, with that kind of travel, it's really hard to give your your family and your relationships, the attention that they need. And I would say, frankly, that I think I sacrificed a lot of that during my career for, you know, pursuit of my career goals. But despite that, my wife and I have four kids between us and they're all successful in their own right. They're all well-adjusted. They all love us and we love them. And it's I'm very pleased that it's worked out that way despite the... uh, but the travel and the career distractions and often the uh, the, room, the remote parenting.
1: Yes. But that's just fantastic to hear Peter that you've got a great relationship and they're all they're all out there looking out for themselves and enjoying life.
2: Indeed they are and you know they're all mature well adjusted people who are I think in some cases entrepreneurially oriented or very career oriented. Uh, I hope that uh, we've imparted some good values to them.
1: Well, I I have no doubt if they need anyone to talk to about starting up a biotech company, they know who to go to. Thanks, Tim. (laughs) Peter, I just want to, again, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us. I do know that you are busy and and you're in a a formative time in the listing of Fibrick, But look, it's been fantastic to get an insight into your life, but also your career. And it is definitely such a decorated career. And And we can't go into each transaction in detail, but each one has its own exciting parts. And I look forward to another opportunity to chat because there'll be so much more to cover off on. But I do, again, appreciate your time.
2: Uh, You're most welcome, Tim.
1: And thanks again. And all the best with Firebrick. We'll be watching.
2: Okay, thank you.
1: Thanks again, Peter.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian Wealth Management and Diversified Financial Services Company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at EurosHartleys.com or visit our website at www. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.